this is We Are History Pod, and um, oh, John, we've got an apology to make, haven't we? Before we even start, we're going to be saying sorry to our listeners. What a way, three series in, is it three yeah. or four, and we I don't... I think this is our fourth series, and we start with an apology. We're not apologising for the previous three series, let's no. make that clear. well, you know. <laughs> well, in case. <laughs> no sound no. issues, technical issues. We have got technical issues. We could blame it on the fact that John is in New York City and I'm in Brighton, UK. However, it's just that we're old and slightly incompetent. Well, uh, both of us cocked up. Yours was at like 400 miles an hour on fast forward and mine was absolute silence, which for a podcast is not what you want to have nothing at all. No. Luckily, though... I had press play and re- press play and record. How old am I? I had press records on the Zoom yes. that we were also having at the same time. So we do have episodes. It's just that the audio quality might be a little bit ropey, by which I mean ropier than usual. That's what you're going to hear on this week's episode, a Zoom recording. So apologies for uh, the low quality of the podcast you're about to hear. The audio, John, the audio of the podcast you're about to hear. <laughs> Welcome back to We Are History. It's series 27 or something. Um, Poor John, series four. Don't people be at home going, oh, I've missed a load. That sounds, makes it sound good. Um, how have you been, Angela? I'm all right, John. How, it's yeah. all, we should say to people that we're in different continents right now. It's quite exciting, isn't it? First oh, time yeah. we've done a transatlantic recording. I love your little country. Yeah, you in, uh, in Brighton, England. Is that right? <laughs> How long have you been there, John? A week. Oh, uh, yeah, but it's affected me. In New, New York, York City on Broadway. Yeah, if you hear sirens in the background or, you know, uh, cabs honking, that's what it all is. Uh, <laughs> I'm on the 33rd floor on 45th Street, New York, Manhattan. Wow. Wow. So, so you doing Mrs. Doubtfather musical? Mrs. Doubtfather musical, yeah. Is it back and, up and running now? Well, we're in uh, tech at the moment. This is why I can slip away to do this podcast. Uh, I should be in the theatre by rights, but I've just slipped away. And um, previews start on the 21st of October. So, uh, that's, yeah. Fingers that's crossed so that all works and that nobody gets bloody COVID or anything. So, yeah. Because you had previews before, right? And then COVID hit before you yeah, properly had, got started. Yeah, we had three previews and, um, and the thing closed down for like 30 days. And that was March, <laughs> March 2020. So, yeah, now we're finally back after 18 months. And it's great to be back in the theatre and working with those lovely actors and just doing... Doing what we all want to do, which is just get on but, with our jobs. I mean, work, working with actors is not as fun as working with comedians, right, John? I mean, oh, they're a bit no, of a handful of actors, yeah? Working with Angela Barnes is infinitely Thank preferable. You. <laughs> and you, during the holidays, hey. dear listeners, Angela got married. What a great I day did. that was. I did get married and John was there. It was fun, wasn't it? Oh, it was a great wedding. It was one of the best weddings I've ever been to, if I'm honest. Uh, oh, John. Oh, no, seriously, it was so warm-hearted and such a great atmosphere. And just, you thought of everything. She got me this little... <laughs> nameplate and on it were little badges everyone had the individual badges for their name <laughs> cards and it was like the labor party it was narrow boats it was uh, acting it was a uh, theater comedy it was all the things at fulham she had all my personality traits or my interests on little ba- enamel badges so yeah it was very touching all the thought you put into it. it we were so lucky it was a beautiful sunny day and we were out in yeah. this lovely 
field in the countryside with it. It was just, yeah, yeah it was, we, it was a free, lot of work, but it was worth it. And lots of draft bitter based on our podcast. Exactly. About... No wine on the table, was there, John? There no, was, was all beer. Beer. All beer. Draft beer is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Angela came in in an open top. What is it? One, two, five. Fiat 500. Fiat 500. <laughs> 1963 Fiat 500. Yeah, waving. It's brilliant. And uh, great choir as well. I forgot to mention you how love that choir was. I've been playing that elbow track ever since. Uh, would uh, you know what's really the uh, one thing I didn't plan very well is, of course, I missed the choir. <laughs> Yeah, of course because you did. Because they yeah. sang while the, I keep calling the congregation the audience. They're not an audience, yeah, yeah. they're the guests. Yeah. But they sang as the guests were coming in and then they sang outside when we were doing photos. But of course, I missed it all. Yeah. And everyone kept saying to me, oh, they did that elbow song and it was amazing. And I was like, was I missed really it. Amazing. I oh, missed well, it completely. Somebody, maybe, well, get them to come and do it for your birthday mm. or something. But it was a great day. We've had a great summer. We're glad yes. to be back. Yes. Um, yes. Awesome. Autumn now, it's cold, miserable. Good reason. Up. To choose this week's subject, what have you got for us this yeah. week, Angela? Well, John, you may have forgotten since you've been in America for a fortnight now, but over here, we've gone a bit mad with um, a petrol shortage that isn't really a petrol shortage, but there is a petrol shortage. Whenever there's a fuel crisis or shortages or anything in this country now, people go, oh, we're going to have another winter of discontent. And Angela talked to me about doing the winter of discontent. And she's going, she said to me, is that the same thing as the three-day week? Now, well, someone who's old it. enough to remember both of them. <laughs> I was going, no, three-day week actually was worse. That was the tall. Yeah. Winter discontent has a better brand. That's well, like this more is the famous. interesting thing about it, isn't it? Because the whole sort of strife of the 70s gets conflated into one big event that lasted yes. a decade when actually it was under two different governments. People sort of just think, oh, yeah, uh, it was terrible under the winter of discontent when the uh, miners went on strike. It's like, no, no, that wasn't the, that wasn't the same thing. So we're <laughs> going to unpick it all today. And we explain are indeed. It all. There's going to be a winter of discontent board game you can play. There's a whole new app you can download, a Winter of Discontent app. And we're, we'll be uh, sending out merchandise. It's going to be a whole industry we're setting up. In the Winter of Discontent was 1978 to 79. So yes, I was gone, you were alive. Like a fetus or something. I was alive, John, but I was, okay. well, what would I have been? Two going on. No, I would Three. have been, I would have turned two in November 78. So right. um, I was a little toddler. Um, Aww, a little yeah. Yeah. Where was what were you a student then? Were you? No, I was at I was at school. I wasn't old enough to vote. I remember we used to have these uh, discussions, these sort of rather formal discussions, where the head of sixth form would get us all sit around in the common room and talk about issues of the day. And I remember this boy that used to really annoy me set it off with, "Sir, what do you think about the unions bringing the country to its knees?" And I was like, "John, John O'Farrell, were you going to defend this? You're the only <laughs> Labour man in the whole sixth form." And so uh, I had to sort of defend, well, I mean, you know, it's probably a bit much that, you know, they're not being able to bury the dead. But I mean, you know, you've got to think about it from the other point of view. So that was me in 78. What's little John champion of the unions? <laughs> exactly. That's always how they called me. In 79, uh, there was a, in the election, which we'll get to. That's I stood yes. for Labour in that school. Got 30 votes. 30 wow. votes out of a possible 1,300. To be fair, you were at school in Maidenhead. Let's. I was, yes, yeah, where I went stood. I went back to the school when I stood for Parliament proper there. I said, you oh, only cool. stand for Parliament in Maidenhead twice, once on the way up and once <laughs> on the way down. It's great to be back. <laughs> and, of course, people can read about that in your book, Things Can Only Get Worse. 
think it's going to get better, actually. It'll be in that one, the first one. The oh, is it the first one, one, is it? When you yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. To 97, yeah. But good. Yes. Thanks for plugging both books. That's good work, yeah. I'm just going to lead on this one. I haven't read a book about it. I've read a book yeah. about it as well, actually. I mean, I'm, the book I've read is Crisis What Crisis by John Shepard. But there's lots of stuff out there about it. And like I say, I wasn't around. So obviously, John, you'll have memories of it that I don't have. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. was around, but not around. But I think it's quite interesting, the sort of situation with the unions in the 70s. Because union membership was suddenly higher than it had ever been. Because you had, well, for a start, you had women in the workforce more than you'd had before. So a lot of the increase in union membership was women returning to work or entering the workforce. And apparently 73% of women who started work in the 70s joined a union as opposed to 19, 20% of men who started That's working in the 70s. Yeah. But those jobs that women were doing tended to be in those sort of public sector mm. uh, jobs like the health service and, and where the crisis came in, in this all winter um, so they were quite involved in some of those, uh, yeah. those strikes. And you also had a lot more people from minority ethnic groups joining unions at that point. 61% of black male workers were unionised, but only 47% of white male workers. There had been something a little earlier in the decade called the Grunwick strike. Mm. I don't know if you've got that in your notes at all, but the Grunwick that, strike That's the was Ugandan a... women, isn't it? Well, there were... Uh, the Ugandan-Asian that have been expelled by Idi Amin. Yeah. 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 But they were working in a, a, a photo processing lab and were mm. really exploited. And their strike was quite a major event on the news. And they had all, mm. you know, people going down there and supporting them. Even Shirley Williams went down and joined the picket line. Then things got ugly when all the men started turning up and joining the picket line. There were police yeah. violence. And, uh, but it was uh, the first time that the British public became aware of uh, sort of women of color leading a strike and, uh, being on the news every night and talking very articulately about how they're being exploited and how their wages are being pushed down and made for longer hours. Uh, and it was sort of inspiration, I think, for a lot of uh, women of colour, you know, in the health service to sort of become mm. more unionised. So if we go back to the beginning of the decade quickly, I'm not going to go back to the Big Bang, John, but I think it's important that we do make this differentiation between what happened under Edward Heath at the beginning and, and then yeah. under Wilson and Callaghan. It You've starts got... with long hair. It starts with long hair in the 70s, <laughs> ends with short hair. That's, that's what you need to think. Big collars, then small collars. It you starts know, the... with the Beatles, ends with no Beatles. Yeah, exactly. Uh... <laughs> well, yeah, it starts with, uh, ends with, the beginning of the 70s, of course, is when the Beatles split up, but it starts with sort of yeah. glam rock, ends with punk, and, mm. and ends with sort of the human league. Someone like me, my hair would have been cut off very gradually over sort of 12 or 18 reforming months. None of this <laughs> blunt blunt scissors with crazy color and so I'm like yeah <laughs> damn with society i was like well we're looking we are looking at we're cutting the hair back gradually uh, <laughs> none of these things well john i'm any. looking at you now on zoom it looks like you went a bit far i did well it's uh, <laughs> so long in the early 70s it, it wore out the roots that's why that's why i'm bald now the fringe couldn't it couldn't it couldn't take the weight sorry angela you were saying about so, no song. that's quite all right so <laughs> so by the early 70s, we'd had a Wilson government and then we have uh, Edward Heath. Heath yeah, and a Tory government, obviously. And um, the, there'd been, I think it's important to sort of talk about the post-war consensus at this point. Yes. So since the end of World War II and until the 1970s, really, and, and we're going to sort of talk about yes. how the consensus fell apart, there's sort of this debate about whether or not it really was a consensus or what it was. But, but it was skillism. where... Yeah, but skillism. Yes, so that's Rab Butler from the Tories and Hugh Gateskill from the uh, Labour. Labour Party. Yeah. And they sort of worked together on an economic plan, very much based in sort of Keynesian yeah. economics, economics, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So the idea and being, then, and I'm not, I'm re- I mean, I'm really bad at economics, John, so I'm going to keep this real light. Um, and this was in old the, money, so it was even harder. Uh, exactly. I mean, I wonder if they said, how many shillings in a pound? That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> but basically it's spending your way out of a recession. Um, yep. Investing you know, in you know, public works and all that. In, exactly. Uh, so it increased inflation, you increase public spending, et cetera. Yeah. So inflation and recession were these sort of mutually exclusive things under that idea. Um, yeah. But then things started in the 70s to not go the way that economists yes. predicted. So you end up with this situation as inflation rose in Britain in the 60s and 70s, something they called stagflation happened. Stagflation. Stagflation. stagflation which is stagnation. And inflation. So suddenly you had poor economic growth coupled with high inflation. And that, you know, there could be lots of causes for that. But it sort of went against these Keynesian theories, really. Yeah. So throughout the 70s, inflation was, I mean, it got to its highest. I think it was in 1975. It got to 20-something percent. Yes, and that's for Um, other international reasons, which I'm sure you're going to come on to. We will indeed. But it was double figures through a lot of this period. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, that, that, and that meant you know that had big impact on ordinary people. You put your savings mm. away, and suddenly they weren't worth as much as they were when you put them away. You go to buy a loaf of bread, and it had gone up significantly during the week. We don't really, mm. we never lived with the raging inflation in our lifetimes, really. No, um, not to that extent, have we? Where it makes that much difference, really. You, you feel it when barely... you go in shop, you know. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting because you're at a time where people are being sold. You know, you can have foreign holidays now. You can have a washing <coughs> machine. You can have a Colour television, you know, all these things that 20 years before they didn't have. But then, you know, working people suddenly couldn't afford those things that they've been promised that were going to be in their lives. So they they really felt it. And there had been decades of uh, improving standards of living. It's what the French Mm -hmm. call les 30 glorious, the 30 glorious years from the war Mm -hmm. to the 70s, where standards of living were improving and uh, people were sort of finding that they were better off than their parents. And we thought that was going to be in uh, a continual trajectory. So sorry, kids, about that flat you wanted to buy. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Ask any <laughs> nice women, people lasted. under 30 now and they'll tell you that's not how it works yeah, anymore, yeah. As, we, as we know. Yeah. So um, Edward Heath's government implements something called the Industrial Relations Act in 1971, which is the sort of first attempt by the Tory government really to try and weaken the economic power of trade unions. Um, Trade unions obviously have collective bargaining. They can bargain for their pay um, increases every year to be in line with inflation, et cetera. But with this high inflation, it was really in the interest of the economy to, to sort of cap that somewhat. Yes, that was like the dominant sort of political narrative at the time is that we can't put up pay 15% 15% if we're going to bring inflation down. It's like, and then the workers going, yeah, but our, the cost of our loaf of bread has gone up 25%. We need to be paid more so we can continue to be able to afford our kids and, you know, and, and pay our mortgage or pay our rent more likely back then. So uh, it was one of those things where the authorities and the powers that be, the government and employers were, you know, using this stick with which to hold down wages um and it's very interesting hearing different perspectives on it in some of those in the in the book i read about what it was like mm. to be at the sharp end of that so you get a situation where by january 1972 unemployment's at two million which is the highest it's been in over two decades yeah trade unions respond to that with pretty much a full-scale counter-attack on this government that's 
completely hobbled by inflation and, and this high unemployment. This is the Heath government, yeah, the Heath, Heath the government, government 70, yeah. 70 to 74. Um, so in 72 and 74, there were these two miners' strikes. Now, I think these are what often get conflated with the winter of discontent, which was much later, because these miners' strikes, particularly the latter one, 1974, was what led to the three-day week. Yes, along with the uh, petrol situation. Yeah, yeah. so the petrol, yeah. there was also a fuel crisis there because in 1973, I think it was, uh, yes. OPEC, which is the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they suddenly hiked their oil prices in retaliation for US support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. So yeah. suddenly um, Britain and Europe and America have these hugely inflated oil prices. This was a massive a deal. shock to the economy. <clears throat> this was massive. They've yeah. quadrupled the price overnight. So this really sent shockwaves across the world because uh, we'd always taken cheap fuel for granted. And suddenly Saudi Arabia, leading this, realised that they had an enormous amount of power. And why were they going to put up with America doing whatever they wanted? So suddenly, mm. the shortage of fuel. I remember the garage at the end of our road ringing up my dad and saying, the tanker's coming, you can come and get some petrol. It was like they knew the phone numbers of their customers and rang wow. us up to get some petrol. If I wish it was like that at the moment, because <laughs> I, I had Matt queuing in Asda for two hours the other night. Oh, to no, fill up. it's terrible. Maybe yeah. they did actually issue uh, rationing cards in the 70s for fuel. Mm. They never actually were deployed, but they printed them all up. I remember seeing mm. a thing on John Craven's news round about the Western Isles where everybody was Mac something. And they went, oh, this doing this in, you know, an order of um, you do the uh, A's to G's on the first day. But that's nobody, you know, anyone M, <laughs> entire population of the island. This isn't going to work. Back to 1974. So yes. uh, there is a general election in February 1974. So by this point, we've had the three-day week. You know, yeah, which so let's was explain what under Heath's government. Let's really reinforce that. It wasn't the winter of discontent. It was a three-day yeah. week. Heath's government, minor strike. Yeah, so three-day week. Just to, can I say a bit about that, Angela? Yeah, go on, yeah. Very easy to shoplift in Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, candles on the trolleys, candles all over the shops. You'd be listening to a, a record in your bedroom and the power would just go out. And go, mm. Just like, <laughs> telly would pop off. So just all the lights would go out. My next-door neighbour had a candle business and um, they, was, they were booming. I bet. Um, and I could remember random. even in the early 80s when I was sort of maybe six yeah. or seven, my nan still had drawers full of candles that were left over from the three-day wow. week. Yeah. And so the three-day week mean, means what it was. They, there was you, your job, place of work, you know, you, you three days out of five, uh, you went into work. The other two days you didn't to save fuel. It's hard to imagine the government sort of suggesting such a thing now. Heath had like five states of emergency during his brief four years as prime minister. It was quite, quite a sense of swinging from one chaotic crisis mm. to the next. And for my money... The three-day week was a much bigger crisis than the winter mm. of discontent. In terms of feeling it on the ground, lights going out, no petrol. Uh, you were supposed to have a, a, an inch of bath water. There was a, they were to tell you how much bath water you should have. Don't use all that hot water. Uh, you were supposed to put the heating off. Television ended at 10.30. I mean, there's only three channels anyway, and the TV was pretty <laughs> crap. But it's like, there's nothing to and watch. And one of them was showing the TUC Congress. No, it's like, oh, great. It's an open university. <laughs> so um, <laughs> We'll come on to later the sort of, justice of of Callahan's government kind of ending up getting the blame for a lot. Yeah, yeah, quite. That's what, I, that's what I feel. Um, I think that people think of it all as the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, it was right. There were two separate crises and I rep from my money, the one under Heath was far worse. I mean, it's not his fault that OPEC, you know, uh, quadrupled prices. No. The minor strike was his fault. 
But uh, yeah, and also it was a, it was a lot longer time than it went on, you know. And we'll come yeah. to this as well. But the winter of discontent lasted six weeks. I think in people's yeah. heads, there was an interview with John Lydon. Yeah, Sex Pistols was a documentary. Sex Pistols yeah. documentary in the year two thousand, and they were talking about the seventies. And he was like saying, you know, there are power cuts that went out on for the whole decade, went on for years. It's like it didn't. It didn't. And it's like rubbish <laughs> was in the streets. That's what people have remembered, you know. Rubbish in the rubbish streets. Rubbish piled up on the streets for yeah, exactly. And I think this, I think this throws a very interesting light on how history is remembered and how mm. myths are constructed. Lots of people will see documentaries about the winter of discontent over and over again, or they'll see clips of it and on programs and they'll think that's what they remember. So I did a documentary about the 1970 world cup and they said to me, you know, we talk about, about, about it being the first world cup in color and how amazing that was. And I, I watched it back and all these people were going, it was so amazing to see those Brazilian shirts in gold. And I went, I said, no, we were all had black and white tellies then. We didn't see yeah. it in colour. We've seen it in colour since, and we think that's what we remember. But we all watched that World Cup in black and white. But over all these other sort of talking heads like with me, we're going, and just the, 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 the blue of the Italian shirts, and the gold, it's so amazing. It's like, that, that, you've remembered that since. You've invented those <laughs> memories. And yeah. the same with the winter of discontent, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's like when you look at photos from the past, so, and sometimes I think, do I remember something happening, or do I just remember a photograph of something happening? Exactly. That's, yeah, that's that's you how know, this is. That's, that's how this has that, been reimagined, and, I think. And it's been reimagined. You know, well, we'll come on, on again to the role of the media in how it's been sort of because it it hasn't done any harm to the Tories for people misremembering. No, no quite. <laughs> well, they sort of helped construct the myth. But yeah, so yeah. we get to the general election of 1974. So 74, there's a general election. Um, Ted Heath campaigns under the slogan, who governs Britain? To which the country <laughs> responds, not you, mate. No party won a majority. Heath tried to negotiate with Jeremy Thorpe, the then Liberal leader. You can See hear that podcast. podcast about him. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't successful. And so he ends up resigning in March 1974. And Harold Wilson is back as head of a minority Labour government. They managed to repeal this Industrial Relations Act, which Heath had brought in to try and sort of yep. temper the unions. They repealed that and they brought in instead the 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act. Yeah, and they ended the miners' strike, crucially. They sort of paid the miners what they were asking for because they, everyone felt they deserved it, actually. Um, mm. And so that was a, a big change. So Thatcher was like, oh, you don't give them to the unions. But then we have this sort of, uh, these few years of, uh, you know, a return to what Thatcher used to call beer and sandwiches at number 10. It was like union <laughs> leaders coming to Downing Street and talking about, you know, pay restraint and trying to set that in a partnership with, the representation of the representatives of working people, which seems reasonable to me, but that was like oh, beer and sandwiches at number ten. Sounds quite nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I'd be up for beer and sandwiches at number ten. Well, not in current number ten, I wouldn't. I'd, no. But um, so Wilson's back in. We've got Dennis yeah. Healy as the Chancellor. Yep. And they really need to now tackle this problem of inflation because by 1975, inflation is at 26 percent. Yes. Which is high, John. It's real high. 26% is high, yeah, yeah. Now, previously, um, in the previous Wilson in the administration, yeah. in the 60s, Barbara Castle had presented a white paper called In Place of Strife, which was also sort of trying to sort change the role pain. of the unions, yeah. you know, so that yeah. the unions would have to have a ballot before striking and, yeah, and yeah. things that, like that, to try that and sort of cabinet, change that power. Because yeah. the power of the unions meant that it was very difficult for the governments to bring inflation down yeah, so while what they was, were bargaining for, for higher. Well, while there was a Labour government, there was a sort of uh, a, a constructive attempt to sort of, uh, you know, have a framework under which strikes happened, uh, you know, agreed with the Labour thing or 
do we reject that completely and uh, lose power and let Mrs. Thatcher sort it all out and that's and destroy the unions <laughs> completely? So that's basically what happened over those fifteen years between Emplacer Strife and the Miners' Strike. It was like, yeah, oh, they're looking back in '84, going, do you know what? That looks quite attractive now. Yeah, what, actually, I wish we'd done. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, ah, I see. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's so, a thing called the social contract, wasn't there? Yeah. So this is um, uh, Wilson sort of negotiates this contract with the Trade Union Congress to implement a voluntary incomes policy. So he's repealed the Industrial Relations Act, which, you know, the unions were yeah. pleased with, but they still needed to bring down inflation. And the union leaders did understand that, you know, you can't just have rampant inflation. Yeah, yeah. So together they negotiate this policy, which was called the social contract. And it was a phased policy whereby wage and price controls would be set and agreed by the yeah. government with the union with, leaders. And so the idea was to sort of establish wages and prices below a free market level so you could bring inflation down. Right. Um, and the government would set these limits to the pay rises. So phase one of this pay policy was announced in 1975 in July, and the white paper was called the Attack on Inflation. And it proposed a limit on wage rises of £6 a week for everyone earning below £8,500 annually. Right, so... Okay. The unions sort of agreed to this and um, it was a measure that they accepted because they knew that this was a phased contract. There would be three or four phases and then a return to collective bargaining. So it was the unions doing their bit to help the government bring down inflation with the understanding that eventually they would go back to collective bargaining and, you love know. Collective bar- love that collective bargaining. Love a bit of collective yeah, bargaining. Collective bargaining, yeah. So, so, uh, who- so Wilson is the prime minister, but at this point... He brings in a little uh, a little rule that retired prime ministers should have a car, their own car for life. And his drivers in the driving pool go, why is he doing that then? Why is Wilson suddenly thinking about when he's retired, Ooh. he'll have a car for the rest of his life? What happens, Angela? Well, John, we get to 1976. And to be fair, this social contract is working, right? Recession ended. We're in economic recovery. Things yeah. are looking good. Inflation is coming down. And in fact, by 1978, it'll be back in single figures. But in 1976, in March, Wilson shock resigns. Remember that day at school? Remember? Really? The, yeah. I remember the Tory being really chuffed and me going, well, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's lots of theories, aren't there, as to why he yeah. resigned? Because um, they think it may be that he started exhibiting signs of Alzheimer's, which he later went on to develop, or colon cancer, which he also went on. To yeah. develop. And I think there's an episode to be had about his resignation because it was quite the whole lavender list thing. Yeah, we quite keep promising these episodes, Angela. I know. Like, one day we'll do that. One day. Well, this is an infamous podcast, dinner. Show, it's so like, it's fine. It's like people, it's like people you say, I must have you for dinner. I'm not going to have you for dinner. <laughs> We're never going to talk about the lavender list. But anyway, <laughs> go and Google lavender list. Read about it. It's Google, fine. Yeah. New prime minister. Wilson resigns. We get a new prime minister. Uh, Who, is it? James, Who is it? Tell me. Farmer Jim. Farmer Jim. Farmer yeah. Jim. James Callahan wins the leadership contest and he a becomes. New- yeah, Prime a new Minister. voice for a new voice for Mike Yarwood to do. Mike Yarwood, the impressionist <laughs> show. Callahan, of course, was the only uh, prime minister to hold the four great offices of state. Yes, he was uh, Chancellor, Foreign Secretary, uh, PM, and down the street cat. No, sorry, Home Secretary. Home Secretary. (laughs) Yes, he's the only person still to have held all four offices, isn't he? I think. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. He started out on the left of the Labour Party, didn't he? He gradually, gradually moved towards the right of the party. Um, yeah. Um, and he was known Cardiff. as the the keeper of the cloth cap because his relations with the unions were yep. good. In 1976, um, there is a sterling crisis. By June, yeah. the pound reaches a record low against the dollar. And long story short, Dennis Healy, who's the Chancellor, 
he opts to get an IMF uh, International Monetary Fund loan to the tune of $3.9 billion uh, in order to sort of reset the economy, in order to strengthen the pound. Now, parts of the conditions of the loan were quite heavy cuts on public expenditure. It was sort of a right-wing agenda, wasn't it? Forced onto the country, really, by, by international bankers. Yeah. Well, this is the sort of, you know, turning point. Obviously, Margaret Thatcher gets the credit, for want of a better word, for bringing in that sort of monetarist Milton Friedman uh, way of running. But this is actually the beginning. This is the first sort of time where where, um, Callaghan comes out and says, in fact, I've got a quote. He says, um, this is in 76, he says, we used to think you could spend your way out of a recession and increase employment by cutting taxes and boosting government spending. I tell you in all candor, that option no longer exists and that in so far as it ever did, exist it only worked by injecting a bigger dose of inflation into the system so that was that's not as good an impression as mike yarwood (laughs) maybe if i'd done it in a song it would have been better yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) but very interesting yeah so he's basically dissing the bloody keynesian economic policies of the previous 30 years and this sudden sort of move to monetarist policies tony benn of course is at this point in the cabinet he's energy secretary i think at this point yeah yeah and uh he very much favored a different approach to the economic situation he favored a protectionist sort of siege economy stance including surprise surprise the reversal of the decision to join the european common market we did an episode about it callahan plows ahead with this policy and this is where the social contract that we talked about before between the trade unions and the government starts to fall apart a little bit. They'd gone through phase one, two and three of the uh, social contract, whereby pay increases were significantly less than the rate of inflation. And the unions agreed to that with the idea that phase four would be a return to collective bargaining. Now, when phase four actually came, because of the situation they were in, instead of a return, a phased return to collective bargaining, what actually happened was a government uh, it sort of enforced this 5% pay limit. Yeah, now 5% was a shockingly low figure. That Barbara Castle was appalled yeah. by it uh, because people were struggling and uh, inflation was still way above that. So that was basically like um, really squeezing the poorest in society. Uh, and it was yeah. quite a shocking draconian limit to have set. Are we coming up to the autumn of 78 now? We are, yeah. So um, in July, the TUC vote to reject this limit and insist on this return to collective bargaining. So this tension now between the unions and the government is increasing. And now we come to, I think, a fork in the road of British politics. Angela, if you don't mind me saying so. um, I think we do, John. It might be a good point to take a break, actually. That might be. Maybe that's good. Maybe people are excited. Because if we take another fork at that road... We have a little uh, cliffhanger now. What happens next, John? 1978. It's four years since the last election. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Hello and welcome back to part two of We Are History. You probably heard like one ad or something. Or yeah, you know, I hope it wasn't all, for something, something horrible. I hope it was no, for we something stopped, to make your life better. We, didn't like. yeah, we did, that's nice. true. We, well, we yeah. stopped one of them, John. We don't know what they're using now. So, you know, let's not say, really? no, now it's all things we like. And then we find out it's for... Mining in the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> start, a, start a gold mine in the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> in partnership with We Are History. Yeah. Um, we are talking about um, the winter of discontent. I said, no, no, we had a little break. I've got myself a cup of tea here. I brought lovely. my tea bags over from England. I brought my tea bags from England. Oh, my... you're so English, John. Yeah. Well, the American tea bags are like Lipton's sort of watery things. They're horrible. Oh, but... yeah. Right, it's hard to, have me... you got a kettle there? Because yeah, it's did hard to find a kettle, kettle isn't it? Oh, that's good. Well, Is that on your rider? My own mug. Brilliant. Brought my mug from England because they've got <laughs> pity little thimbles. Marmite. I brought my Marmite as well. And whiskey. That's the other thing. I bought, I bought some whiskey. Went to see um, the Bond film last night and my two American friends had pints, uh, like gallons of Coke. And I just said, can I have a little cup with some ice in it, please? And they gave me that for nothing. I got out my hip flask, poured my whiskey in it. <laughs> made the film go past much more. You're such a Brit abroad. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Oh, yeah. um, so, so we are in the autumn, sort of just coming out yeah. of the summer, 1978. And of course, what we're expecting, four years since the last general election. And of course, Callaghan hasn't been he hasn't had a mandate. elected by the, no. you know, hasn't got a mandate because he replaced Harold Wilson. So presumably, everyone, John. Everyone thinks there's going to be a general election. Presumably there's going to be a general election. And Labour everyone, ahead. including Labour, well, there's a little bit of debate about this, isn't there, about how far ahead Labour were in the polls and whether they really... So I think some polls, they were five points ahead at this yeah. point. But in others, it looked like there could have been um, a hung parliament. In others, yeah. polls show the Tories with a slight lead. So it was sort of yeah. an all-to-play for we'd election had, at this point. We'd had uh, in two inconclusive elections already. It wouldn't have been the end of the mm. world if it had been a narrow no. narrow win. We got to fever pitch. The whole I remember it really clearly. The whole country mm. was going, there's going to be an election, there's going to be an election. He's going to call it. He goes on telly. And we all sat down and, and the, sort of the, your, your, your national leader addressing the nation on television was more of a thing back then. Mm. Um, and whilst he was talking, we thought, this is going to announce the general election. And he went, would an election help the economy? Would an election um, solve the uh, uh, economic crisis? And we were going, oh, no, he's not going to call one. And then, mm. and then it was just like into the unknown. Mrs. Thatcher was not a popular politician at this point she was like no. most people thought she was ghastly and strident and uh, there was a lot of uh, sense around that you couldn't have a woman prime minister you know mm -hmm. labor he was more popular than her labor slightly ahead in the polls and if he had called that election then angela i think history could have been very different thatcher wouldn't have had a second bite they, the tories wouldn't have let her fight another election she would have no. been out it might have been a narratory victory. I don't know. There's some analyses say it would have been a narratory victory, but well, I mean, we don't know. In some parallel yeah. universe, that's exactly what happened. But the, only, the upside um, is that I got a book out of it. So, you know, it's 18 yeah. years of Tory rule brought misery and <laughs> hardship for everyone, but I got a book out of it. Uh, so let's look on the positive side. But yeah, people did just assume it was a general election. And also because of the relationship with the trade unions starting to fray yeah. at that point with this 5% pay limit, the union leaders, so he had a dinner, didn't he? A sort of private dinner with lots of union leaders who basically said to him, if you yeah. don't have the general election now in October 78, yeah. we can't guarantee that the, you know, the unions won't strike over the winter because members, of this pay limit. Our members, our members won't. We yeah, 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 exactly. We should say um, that back, back in those days, these union leaders were celebrities. Everyone knew yeah. who Vic Feather was who Ron Todd was, who um, Jenkins, the head of the post office uh, union was. They were on television. 
Mike Yarwood used to do these guys as well. And they'd always be interviewed on the news and say, well, I've spoken with my executive committee and uh, we cannot uh, agree to a free collective bargaining. And you get, it's like, then you say, oh, that's, Mikey, I was doing a brilliant Mike McCarthy. It's like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, now, I couldn't name, could you name any I'd union leaders? I struggle to name yeah. any union leaders. No, yeah, I really different would. Times. Different, different times. times. Callahan says that there's going to be no election until the spring and that this pay policy, this 5% pay policy is going to continue till yeah. then which obviously went down really well with the unions. Um, Can I just say, Angela, uh, from reading Tony Benn's diaries of the time, mm-hmm. uh, Benn's conclusion was that Callahan was just enjoying being prime minister. And it was like, I don't want to stop being prime minister. And if I have an election, I might. And it's might, great. Being, yeah. yeah, it's great going to see the Queen and being going on all these foreign visits and stuff. And I don't want that to stop. And that was his overriding motivation. Which Wow. You know, yeah, um, it's sorry, hard to sorry. say because he, yeah, Callahan did enjoy all the sort of yeah, statesman the, stuff. Did he? he was good yeah. friends with Schmidt and with Gerald Ford, Jimmy, even. He had a really. Gerald Ford, yeah. yeah. Angela, talking of Ford, what happened? Oh, I see what you did. Yeah, oh, John, your for that. Applause for that segue. Come on. Oh, this dear. is gold. So, so, this is a catalyst for what is about to happen for the winter discontent. All sorts of starts at the, the Ford factory. So, to, to sort of. So, Ford obviously. Private sector, yep. but the although this wasn't a sort of official guideline, the pay rise set by Ford was sort of seen as a benchmark for negotiations throughout the whole private sector. So Ford would set their pay rise for the year, and the rest of the private sector would tend to sort and of cars and manufacturing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in 1978, Ford had had a good year, right? So they could have afforded to pay its workers quite a large pay rise. Ford could pay my mum had one. Yeah. Well, yeah. Lovely. But because it was a government contractor, Ford, Mm -hmm. they needed to sort of toe the line a bit with the government and their 5% pay cap. So that's what they did. They limited their pay offer to this 5% that the government had set. And of course, the workers, um, the Ford workers, 15,000 Ford workers, most of them from the Transport General Workers Union, when uh, I don't think so. <laughs> You've had these right, massive yeah, yeah. profits and yeah. we want our cut. So in September 1978, they began an unofficial strike, which then became an official TGWU action on the 5th of October 78. And this grew to 57,000 participants. Right. Ford then have to sort of weigh up the consequences of this strike against mm-hmm. the government sanctions that they could face if if they gave a yeah. higher pay offer. So the government had said when um, setting this 5% pay increase that anyone making offers above that would be sanctioned. Oh, you're going to be in trouble. Right? So they're going to be told off on the naughty step. Told off by Farmer Jim. Exactly. So Ford sort of think about that and then they think, well, I think we're more scared of our workers not working than we are yeah, of whatever yeah. the government's going to do. So they then revised their pay offer to 17%. Which the workers accepted. Seventeen is a bit above the five percent limit. Isn't it? Just a tad above yeah. the five percent pay limit. So yeah. the government then, Jim Callahan then gets all angry and goes, right, well, we told you what would happen, so we're going to impose sanctions on Ford, um, along with two hundred and twenty other companies that had done a similar thing. It's a lot. I mean, I mean, I would say that car strikes were such another thing of the seventies. It's like, mm. I mean, you know, 
when Basil Forty takes the newspaper into uh, one of his guests, uh, morning major, another car strike. I don't know why we bother, you know. It was like mm. car strikes at Chrysler and at British Leyland. Yeah. Uh, it was just like weekly news. And then there'd be another union leader and signs of uh, men standing around braziers, you know, on picket mm. lines. It was just a constant sort of feature. And this was the narrative of the news that was building up. The government said, right, we're going to impose these sanctions. But what actually happened was the Conservatives put down a motion in the House of Commons to revoke the sanctions which initially passed. Callaghan put down an amendment. The government eventually won by 10 votes, but it was too narrow a victory for them actually to impose any sanctions. So suddenly the government, any power they had against businesses sort of upping this pay offer, gone, because they couldn't implement any of the sanctions that they'd warned them that they would. So that, of course, sends out the message across the private sector, certainly. Yeah. You can basically do what you like, this 5% pay cap. They can't do anything if you go exceed it. So the government lost its authority, really, and it lost the... Uh, partnership with the unions that had been the sort of appeal of a Labour government, really, uh, to say that you know, we can we can negotiate with these guys. You Tories can't, but that is sort of blown apart by this. Yeah, absolutely. So now you've got a situation. Oh, it's worth mentioning as well. November comes, cold weather hits like properly. That, do you remember it, John? Do you remember that winter? Oh, terrible. I don't actually, but yeah, no, I think I, I, think I do. <laughs> I think I had that. I was on. I remember um, had a little moped then because I was sixteen, seventeen, and going um, going to school on my moped and uh, the. Um, trying to go, go down this hill that was just pack ice and just sliding oh, all over God. the place and the moped ending up on its side and me looking a bit embarrassed in front of all these <laughs> younger school kids. But yeah, yeah, it was very cold. And that was, um, yeah. it was like third coldest of the century, apparently. And yeah, um, it was heating bills and all this it added up to people's sense of crisis. Mm. Once these strikes start, that's when the media starts going, oh, well, you know what will happen? Like it has yeah. here with the yeah. fuel and food shortages we kept getting told were yeah, going to happen yeah. before they did. And then, of course, yeah. they become a self-fulfilling... Yeah. Prophecy. Sugar. Sugar was one. My mum, there was going to be a sugar crisis. My mum mm. filled up this whole, the whole cupboard where the um, vacuum cleaner was kept in our house was full of bags of sugar because there might be a sugar shortage. Yeah. It's like, of course, it's because people like my mum stacking. Bought, filled up. Your thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's what's happened with the petrol. It's what happened with flour yeah, yeah. last year. It's what, yeah, yeah. you know, the yeah. minute you say there might be a shortage of something. Everyone goes out and buys it. On that hey, note, everyone, there, there is a, a short- shortage of tour tickets for my show next year. There's going to be a yes. We Are History podcast shortage, just telling you. <laughs> so these strikes start happening. We have a BBC technician strike happens in November. That one gets resolved because they threatened that the Christmas Day coverage of the BBC wouldn't happen, John. <gasps> Funnily enough, the BBC again went, oh, OK, maybe we will off to 15% if, uh, wow. if there's going to be okay. no Mike Yarwood on Christmas Day. And then the big one, really, that really sort of started the panic off was the lorry driver strike. So now the government doesn't have any way to enforce its pay policies. All the unions that haven't put in their pay claims yet start thinking it's a free-for-all. This is brilliant. We can do what we like now. We can ask for whatever we like. So the Transport General Workers Union, they begin demanding rises of 40% for lorry drivers in mid-December. Now, to be fair, like the haulage industry had expanded massively in this period and employers were short of drivers. Is this ringing any bells, John? Yeah, yeah. They're short of drivers. So the drivers they do have are working 70 to 80 hour weeks for minimal pay. Remember, their their pay rises for the last six years have been way below inflation. So lorry drivers indicated that they might strike, which was the first time they indicated they might be doing anything. Hey, so the Road Haulage Association, the sort of industry trade group, they told the government they were going to keep their pay off for below 5%. But when they saw what was going on, they ended up offering 13%. Right, which is obviously still way below the 40% the unions are asking for. Yeah, yeah. So the workers, emboldened by what they've seen at Ford, and also there'd previously been a, a strike, a haulier strike in Wales, um, and they saw a settlement there of 20%. 
So they decide, no, we're not settling for 13%. We're going out on strike. Falling apart, it seems, now this policy. Absolutely. So, and, and of course, you, 80% of goods are transported by road. So this is yeah. a massive problem for the government in the winter. You've already got road closures and things because ice. of snow and ice and other problems. Oil yeah. tanker drivers were still working at this point. But what they would do was they would let the striking lorry drivers know where they were going with their oil tankers so that they could send fly pickets to stop wow. them getting to their destinations. So they were yeah. all sort of, you know, officially working, but still part of the strike. And at this point now, the government starts to debate whether to declare a state of emergency. Margaret Thatcher's pushing for it because it's going to suit her agenda, obviously, if there's a state yeah. of emergency under a Labour government, despite there having been five under Heath's government, yeah, but no yeah, one's talking yeah. about that. Operation Drumstick was conceived. Army were put on standby to drive tankers. Again, bells ringing. Um, And at that point, though, they they couldn't put the army on oil tankers until a state of emergency was declared because only then could they allow the conscription of the assets of the oil companies if there was a state of emergency. So the government did shrink away from doing uh, for for full state of emergency and for implementing that, but the structures were all in place. And it was... um, of course, Tony Benn was energy yep. secretary, so he was sort of implementing that whole operation. And while it's all going on, the media are having a field day, right? Particularly the right-wing media, obviously. Yeah, the Sun had switched sides in 78. So this was about oh. the time that the Sun switched to being from being a Labour paper to a toy paper. Yeah. There was no internet, of course. You found out stuff from reading the newspaper and the TV news took its lead from what the newspapers were reporting. So the agenda mm. was a generally right-wing one, as is now. Yeah, so you had headlines that sort of likened the situation to a siege, to the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's absolute mad. And of course, all these fears of food supplies being yeah. cut did fuel panic buying. People were panic buying. Like you said, your mum yeah. was filling the understairs cupboard with sugar. And it was only when the drivers returned to work, which was only a couple of weeks later. You right. know, people think this went on for the whole of 1979. It didn't. It yeah, went it on for a few, few weeks. weeks at the beginning yeah. of 79. And of course, when all the drivers went to work, people realised that there weren't any shortages and they now had a cupboard full of sugar to eat. You know, and the economist reported that all these predicted shortages of food just didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, one it was Douglas Smith of the Employment Department recalled years later that only certain breakfast cereals were actually out of stock. Uh, so Callahan was yeah. uh, attending a summit in Guadeloupe, lovely mm, Guadeloupe, Guadeloupe, the Caribbean. So it was him, Jim Carter, uh, Helmut Schmidt and the French president, Giscard d'Estaing. There's quite a lot else going on in the world at this point. So yeah, you've yeah. got the situation in Iran in 1979 yeah. with the fall of the Shah. And yeah. then you've got... Um, Salt the, the salts too. So we did a podcast about that. The strategic arms limitation talks are taking place to try and sort of negotiate with the Soviet Union yeah, about yeah. the point is the point is Andrew, it's sunny. No one cares so about the point that. is it's, it's sunny, sunny in Guadeloupe. So they are, you know, while they're home. talking about this important stuff, they are yeah. doing a little bit of swimming and a little yeah. bit of sunbathing and a little bit of drinking mm-hmm. cocktails. And then he sort of the, the sort of nail in his coffin was rather than flying straight back from Guadeloupe, he took a few days holiday in Barbados. And a Daily Mail, they photograph him in his budgie smugglers in Barbados. Um, I just, think that's a bit unfair, but yeah. So, well, but bear in mind, I think, you know, people back home, not only are these strikes going on and there's panic and there's right wing media sort yeah. of whipping up the panic. It's also really cold. Yes, yes. <laughs> coldest winter, uh, yeah, third coldest winter of the decade. 
and yeah. it's snow and ice and everything else. So when Callahan re- returns to Heathrow and he sort of steps off the plane with his suntan and a straw donkey clutching a bottle of rum and whistling Una Paloma Blanca. Una Paloma Blanca. <laughs> it's not what they'd call today great optics, John. No, no, <laughs> it's not. No. It doesn't yeah, look great PR. when you're country. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. So um, I think one of his press secretaries sort of said, you need to just go straight to Downing Street. Street, And then someone else advised him, no, we're going to do a press conference, thinking that would sort of sort it all out, which was possibly the worst decision ever. After not having the autumn election, yeah. After not having the autumn election. So he holds this press conference all tanned at Heathrow. Yeah. And um, he starts telling them, you know, what a lovely, jolly time he's had. He was swimming oh, in the sea. He tells oh, them and all this. Taste the rum cocktails. While his press secretary's going, just shut up, Jim. Stop oh talking. God, yeah, it's great. The rum cocktails uh, are brilliant. And this parrot yeah, hand on my you should shoulder try them. is fantastic. <laughs> and then when they do ask him about the strikes, he starts getting angry and sort of accusing the media of not loving their country for bringing up the strikes, you know, for sort of whipping God, up this frenzy, terrible... which he sort of got a point, but not now, no, Jim. No, not now, Jim. Um, and then a reporter from the Evening Standard asks him, what is your general approach in view of the mounting chaos in the country at the moment? And he replies, I promise if you look at it from the outside, I don't think other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Now, when you've got a country whipped up into a frenzy of, of shortages yeah. and everything else, if your prime minister Strikes. is to say there's no chaos. So yeah. the next morning, the front page of the Sun has this famous headline, crisis, what crisis, which actually James Callahan never said those words. But it's still but the title of your book that you read about this. That's the title of the book about it is yeah, crisis, yeah. what crisis. And yeah, that's yeah. the sort of phrase that is really associated with James Callahan's premiership. And the, it was the um, son who actually came up with a, with the phrase "the winter of discontent." That was uh, Larry mm. Lamb, the editor of the Sun, who uh, called it "the winter of discontent." I think after it all happened, actually, and they looked back at it and said, "What our Sun readers need to do is to to quote Shakespeare." I think they're all uh, the, the beginning of the beginning of Richard III is what they're all thinking about right now, and uh, and that's why. But it's weird that it had such a, a powerful sort of. It was such a powerful soundbite, "the winter of discontent," mm. much more powerful than a three day week. They just sort of won the PR war on this. It had been sort of tried out before, but hadn't really stuck like it did in 78, 79. And now when you get um, um, a, a, car, a camping shops uh, in, in, uh, in December, oh, here we they, go. Always, they always put, now is the winter of our discount the Discount tents. tents. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Hats off to them for that. So then, of course, these strikes continued to then work their way into the public sector. So um, this is really when it gets quite serious, actually. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So nurses went out on strike. Railway men went out. Yeah. Lots of hospitals were only really catering for emergencies now. And then lots of groups of workers start taking unofficial action as well, because they yeah. all want a bite of this. And they go, well, if they can get 20%, I can get, you know, why am I sticking to my 5%? Basically, the bubble, so, of the dam had burst, didn't it, really? On this, yeah. after several years of uh, 
uh, wage restraint. They're all going, well, if they're not doing it, I'm not doing it. And they're all very low paid workers. It should be said these yeah. people were, were keeping the country going on low wages. They were paid as greedy and selfish by Thatcher, but they were... But they're on... people being paid way under the rate of inflation. You know, yeah. it, it, it was, yeah, it wasn't motivated yeah. necessarily by grit. And it was, you know, if they're getting their 17%, I should be getting my 17%, yes. you know, or whatever. So, so can so... I just ask, Angela, around this time, were they mm. able to bury the dead? Well, John... This is the, I mean, these are the things I think that really, start, and it's a bit like in COVID times, you know, these yeah. are the things that start really penetrating through to a public consciousness when it starts affecting the NHS and when it starts yeah. affecting, so ambulance drivers refuse to attend 999 calls in some areas, the army have to take over. Again, I've got to say, they did this very reluctantly. They were like, yeah. uh, they, they've been held down and they've been used, the, the emotional blackmail had been used on them, you know, for, for years and years about, oh, you can't go on strike. And so they didn't. Mm. And eventually it's like, they're, they're so underpaid that they, they do this very reluctantly. Yeah, so I think like, people oh, I care. forget yeah. about the social contract. They forget that yeah. they'd, you know, kept their pay low for years up to yes. this point in order to bring down inflation. And it just yes. got to a point where it's like, no, not anymore. The shit really hit the fan when the general municipal workers went out in Liverpool and the bin men usually were the first to go out and they requested that they didn't go first this time because it was always them. Let right. someone else have a go. And so permission was granted for the first time ever for crematoria staff to go out first. And they hadn't oh. striked before. Yeah. So they, they thought there might be some media backlash, but they didn't quite know you what was about to come. couldn't even bury the dead. She exactly. must have said that a thousand times, Maggie. I mean, this was the yeah. iconic soundbite. When we had rubbish piling in the streets, we couldn't even bury our dead. Like, we, mm. like you didn't actually have any dead to bury, Maggie. But Yeah, yeah. and also, what, like did you have dead idea. relatives in Liverpool, Maggie? Yeah, no, yeah, you I didn't. I think so. Yeah. Liverpool City Council had hired a factory to store corpses in until they could be buried. And that thought of that, the thought of unburied bodies, we don't like that, human and beings. There was, always, there, was enough, there was enough capacity to store and delay these funerals. No one said, mm. and it got to the stage where some funerals were delayed. It was never some funerals are delayed. It's like we couldn't even bury our dead, like they're lying around yeah. in a lounge or something. I listened to this uh, interview with this guy and he said, is there a danger that we're going to have to um, bury these bodies at sea? No. So you're saying we could bury them at sea? No. <laughs> are we going to come to the stage where it's a health hazard? No. No. So there we have it. There's a health hazard. We may have to bury them at sea. It's like, it's just ridiculous. It's just, but then you did have some other doctor, like the medical officer of health for Liverpool. He said that burial at sea would be considered and also said that they were considering allowing the bereaved to dig their own funerals, graves. Like their the own. Ground was frozen which obviously anyway. was never going to happen. It was, the ground was yeah, frozen. Exactly. You couldn't just, dig anybody. <laughs> so the grave diggers, they eventually settled for a 14% rise after a fortnight off the job. So that they were only on strike for two weeks, John. I think that's the other thing yeah. as well. People think it was yeah. a year of bodies piling Lying up. Over around. The, yeah, yeah. It was two weeks in Liverpool. <laughs> but the bin men were on strike as well. And the images of rubbish in Leicester Square, well, that was really iconic. So you sort yeah. of see uh, central London with piles of bins and rats. And, well, you know, I mean, I live in Brighton, John, where we have You've a bin to... strike about three times a year. We've got one at the moment. So there's piles the of rubbish in Brighton at the moment. I thought you'd arrange for it to be for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Just... Piles of bins. <laughs> so Callaghan, he took these strikes quite personally because even though it was definitely, you know, by not calling the election and by being adamant about the 5% pay limit, he had to take some responsibility. But he built his career on this connection to the trade unions and he called the strikes free collective vandalism. The so other thing I'd say about this is that the Labour Party was split. So the Labour Party now yeah. was like, this isn't working. 
Jim has not been worked right. There's a left and right of the party, which will rip asunder after the election. Mm. But mm. Um, so he didn't really have the support of his whole cabinet or the ordinary members was thinking this is all a bloody disaster. Yeah. And a split like that could never happen today. No, so, absolutely. Uh, very well put. So the strikes begin to wind down in February. There's been approximately six weeks of disruption, Yeah, uh, which again, to hear people talk about the winter of discontent you'd think it was six months or more yeah. in total in 1979 29,474,000 working days were lost in industrial disputes compared with 9,306,000 in 1978 so it was yes. you know it was significant and it should be said that actually the 70s generally <laughs> had far greater numbers of strike days lost than previous oh, yeah. decades it was always uh, i think the average was around three or four million yeah, and then it was like 13 million, I think, in this oh. decade. And then much greater than France or West Germany as well. So there was a problem. They used to call it the British disease. There was a problem mm. with industrial relations in the UK. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the solution that's proposed is always that poor people will get paid less. Uh, it's never that sort of management somehow, you know, uh, takes less of a slice. But no, the damage was no. done, wasn't it? It was indeed. And, and, you know, the way the media reported and everything, it really helped the Conservatives to disseminate these arguments about the unions and them being out of control and greedy and this narrative couldn't, that... You couldn't even bury the dead. Couldn't even bury the dead, John. Rubbish <laughs> piling up in the streets, couldn't even bury the dead. Um, you know, and the newspapers were full of letters to the editor reflecting a, this public anger yeah. with the unions yeah. um, that really obviously served Thatcher well. She'd been calling for the government to declare a state of emergency right from the beginning of January because that would have really fed into her narrative as well. Yes. Um, and in a party political broadcast in January, she sat in this small sitting room and she spoke, she said, not as a politician, but as a Briton. John, I can't do oh the accent. God. You do it better than I do. Tonight, <laughs> I don't propose to use the time to make party political points. I do not think yeah, you'd want me to record. do so. Yeah, the crisis our country faces is too serious for that, you know. That's rubbish. That is rubbish, Andrew. I'm going to have to it say is It is rubbish. It's you're bollocks. sort of half it's committed bollocks. to it. I don't think you're fully committed to it. I tried, me. I really yeah. tried. And then I just, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm no Mike Yarwood. Do you know what I mean? I'm just it's not. true. I do um, not think you would want me to do so. It's almost like, John, you've spent more time than me watching and obsessing over Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> yeah, she's, my, she's my anti-mother. <laughs> she... <laughs> <laughs> so, oh um. In November 78, so at the beginning of the crisis, Labour had a five percentage point lead in the polls right. over the Tories. By February 79, just four months later, three months later, the Tories were already showing a 20 point lead in the polls. All right. And this so, is difficult because the clock is ticking on this government anyway, because you're only allowed to be in Parliament for five years. Had he had that election in October, yep. they could have won. Now, no chance. 28th of March 1979, House of Commons passed the motion of no confidence by one vote. Southfordshire was too ill to attend. There's one Labour MP who was too ill to, to take part in the vote. Really? To prove his point, he died a few days later. Alfred Sherman. Day after Callaghan's 67th birthday. We share a birthday, me and Jim Callaghan. Do so you? He's, he's exactly 50 years older than me. Well, he's not alive anymore. But yeah, so oh. that was the day after that was the day after my 17th birthday when uh, uh, the house caught that famous no confidence vote. It's really dramatic. General election on 3rd of May. Thatcher runs under the slogan, Labour isn't working. You remember that famous poster with them all queuing? They were actually mm. uh, young conservatives from South Hendon Conservative Party, those people. Oh, <laughs> and so Labour complained about that and it got loads more publicity for the poster. It was shared on the news and everything. That's so, it, the Streisand yeah. effect, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it is exactly Yeah. That. The consequences are we then end up with 18 years of Tory rule and everyone's happy, right, John? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no one's got any complaints about that, I think. I think, well, listeners will all agree. Absolutely, I, mean, I, I think so. Yeah. So I, basically, while... 
the beginning of this sort of monetarism is attributed to Callahan. Thatcher took it yeah. and really ran with it. She really um, did. Oh, really she, saw she, off that post-war she, consensus. She'd read her Milton Freeman and, uh, and, and Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Hey, John, ready for this? They went from Keynes to Milton, which is better than going to Milton to Keynes. To Milton Keynes, but I'm... Hey, hey. That's the sort oh, of, political, thank you very much. Sort of thank you very much. deep political analysis that you, <laughs> you really want. What would have happened if there hadn't been an election? I don't think the SDP would have been created. Labour mm. might might have held it together if they'd been in power. It would have been, uh, Thatcher would have been 18 years of Thatcher, as you're saying. Who knows why? what might have been different? We might have gone a more French route where unions still had a role to play. Mm. And think- also, I wonder if, if they had had the election in October but hadn't won, I still wonder if there would have been quite that gang of four breakaway that there was. Yeah, but I just think... Thatcherism wouldn't have happened in the same way. Yeah, I mean, you exactly. know, it happened. We had Reaganism in America, so maybe it would. But mm. some I mean, neoliberal the, 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 something or other. Yes, there might have been some other form, and it might have been Labour doing it. They might have split split the party even more. Who knows? But six seventy six to seventy nine, fascinating period. John gets his hair cut. The pistols split. <laughs> I was born. Angela was born. Uh, so yeah, amazing time. Very hard to imagine now. Three TV channels. Everyone going. Oh, TV's ending at ten thirty. We'll go to our rooms and read our books mm. and that's going to use up more power than if we'd all you know, stayed in one room. Do you know room. what he though, John? I, I sort of wish we'd go back to that because I, I can't deal with so much choice. I can't deal with it. It's <laughs> no. just, if somebody said, right, the telly goes off at half 10, I'd go, brilliant, yeah. I'll go and read a book then. Rather than go, I could read a book. I could watch any film that's ever been made. I could listen to any album that's ever been made. I could read any book that's ever, it's too much, John, I can't cope. <laughs> Then it was just one thing. You watch Blue Peter. Blue Peter actually had a little feature during the winter of discontent on um, how to wrap an old person in newspaper to keep them warm. <laughs> so it's like John Noakes. No, they did. I read this thing. <laughs> uh, so the book I read about this was the winter of discontent. As long as they don't smoke, that could have been disastrous. They all smoked. They all dried yeah. their vests over the paraffin heaters. We'd had a fireman yeah. strike a couple of years beforehand. I read the winter of discontent, myth, memory, and history by Tara Martin. Martin, Martin Lopez and I think the, the myth thing is what's really interesting for me because yeah. it was a big deal for a few weeks and there was rubbish piled up in the streets and there were power cuts and there were heating and there was you know uh, picket lines but it was nothing like what we've just had with COVID it was nothing oh like and- 200,000 people dying and the government are on 40% in the polls and it's like because yeah. of who controls sort of you know the national discourse the COVID report's come out today hasn't it yeah. as we've we're yeah. talking uh, today and and how that doesn't make a prime minister resign. When you see what prime ministers resigned yeah. over in the past, it and what the ha- blows what, what my mind. No, if you had a Labour government sitting over this crisis, it would have been absolutely ripped apart. Mm. But Johnson just gets fucking away with anything. It drives me crazy, Angela. Even from here in my luxury apartment in New York, <laughs> where I'm, where I'm doing a musical. I'm so cross about what's happening in Britain. I'm thinking of never coming back like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Have I lost some credibility. Is my argument dying in my mouth here? I think it's a fascinating example of myth, the power of myth and narrative. Really is. And and just how you can make, you know, collective memory is a thing and how you can actually, a whole nation can misremember. Yeah. I mean, it was a crisis, but it wasn't as bad as a three-day week in terms of, you know, lights out and power strikes and, you know, affecting the everyday work. But somehow it's become this terrible thing, which we must never go back to. And Thatcher went about it all the way through the 80s and even into the 90s. So even when Blair was standing in 97, it's like, I think if you look back at the last Labour government, oh, come on, that was a generation ago. Now. It was you know, six not... weeks in a generation yeah, ago. Let it go, yeah, yeah. Maggie. Let it Jesus. go, guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. So I think John's ranted enough from a fairly weak position, let's admit. Thank you to everyone that's sort of in our little hiatus 
tweeted us and kept in so touch. Please and come back. And... Don't forget you can tweet us at We Are History Pod. And also, yeah. we're hoping now we haven't actually organised anything yet. But if there's like an appetite for it, I think we might try and do some live shows next year, might not we, John? Some live. Hello, Nebworth. <laughs> do yeah. give us a follow. Do do all that. Five stars, um, reviewing and five stars and uh, stuff because yeah. that helps. If you haven't actually subscribed, please do that because that and downloads us. automatically. Yeah. Yes. Bye. Bye.